In this lecture, we will go over the basics of lifestyle medicine in the sense that we'll talk about the evidence base for this field and summarize its importance for individuals, society, and healthcare in general. And we'll put that in the context of history, economics, and the reasoning for having training in this field for healthcare professionals. So let's start by diving into this a little bit. Now you may have signed up for this class thinking, boy, it doesn't sound too bad. It's just common sense stuff, right? And you know, healthy eating, exercise, getting sleep, can't be anything complicated about that. But as much as we know about the benefits of these things, actually helping people adopt these lifestyle behaviors is not so simple, particularly in our modern society. So before we can really talk about that, it would be helpful to kind of look back at the context of how this discipline, its need, even developed. Now, we might think that lifestyles are pretty rough if you look back in history, yet there were some things that they actually got right. For example, farming and agriculture were a much larger part of everyday life for the majority of the population. So it was more common to work harder. And there may have been an effect all day of physical activity. Then you may have eaten food that you actually produced yourself. Um, there may have been way more physical activity, in particular with children spending more time outside and being more active. And they even claim that Einstein apparently um, came to his breakthrough on the theory of relativity while riding a bike. So there are some things that we sort of take for granted. And as urbanization developed, we had longer work hours, more stress, less sleep. And if we look at where we are now, unhealthy lifestyles are more predominant. We're not working outside as much, not doing as much physical activity. We're certainly not eating as much of the food that we might grow ourselves. Um, we spend a lot more time sitting and we find ways to do things without exertion. We eat and drink foods that are highly processed and unhealthy. So how did this all happen? Now, some of it came from things that you and I probably wouldn't want to give up. Now, as a part of the Industrial Revolution, there are quite a few things that made life just way more efficient. For example, travel via steam engine, harvesting techniques for certain types of agricultural products that even led to an easier production of textiles, much better communication, for example, initially with the telegraph and later with the telephone, and we all are addicted to those these days, um, the production of clothing, sewing machines and clothing mills, and essential to our productivity, particularly in the winter months, is the light bulb. Um, those things are just part of our everyday life now. And in fact, when we look at the digital revolution or information age, particularly with the internet, these advances have been huge to increasing efficiency, productivity, but they have decreased our physical exertion. They have increased our food supply. But for example, things like transportation were totally different after the advent of the car and its distribution among the mass population. There was less travel requiring effort 
less walking, less biking, and even riding a horse, which can be an exertion as well. That was less common. So there was much more sedentary time. You got there faster, um, and the time that it took for you to get there, you were spending sitting. Now, what about the television? First came around in the 1920s, and it was really great for widespread dissemination of information, but it soon dominated American culture and led to, again, more sedentary time, potentially hours a day sitting in front of a television. And further along those lines, if you add in technology such as computers and the internet, you have even more sedentary time. In fact, entire fields and jobs revolved around the use of a computer. It created a whole new level of sitting, being sedentary, potentially even less face-to-face time. Now, while the cell phone became something that was really useful, and later on the combination of a computer and a cell phone into a smartphone, that actually decreased face-to-face communication and may in some ways decrease true social connection. Because while we may have social media that lets us connect with people at a distance, we're not doing it as much face-to-face. So things really have changed. And all these changes led to improvements in some things that actually made quite a difference in life expectancy. Now in 1900, your life expectancy would have been about 50. Now it's around 80 years old, depending on whether you're male or female. And while part of this change in life expectancy can be attributed to agriculture, technology, changes and improvements in sanitation, many of these factors were also part of life expectancy being extended with health advancements. So here's just a few examples of some huge health advancements that changed the world. Vaccinations. And that's even become a pretty big um, thing lately, given the coronavirus pandemic. Um, It also used to be that if you needed surgery for something, it was not uncommon for infection to set in. Sanitation, as I said, antibiotics, antivirals, the birth control pill in terms of changes in um, maternal and fetal health advances in childbirth itself so that women were less likely to die from fevers and infection after childbirth. Improvements in heart surgery, cardiac care, and research that allowed us to truly determine the best course of action in certain situations. Radiologic imaging, which was useful in reducing invasive techniques so that you could determine what was going on and then plot a course of action. So, Quantity of life versus quality, though, is something to really think about here. So while your life expectancy might be close to about 80 years, that does not mean that that entire portion of it will be healthy years. In fact, only about 66 years on average will be healthy. So this is the difference between someone's lifespan versus their health span. And in fact, that difference is more than 11 years. So you're losing almost 12 years to some sort of functional impairment. And 
the ideal situation would be to increase your health span so that you're not spending so many years needing health care or even significant personal care, depending on the situation. So what kinds of things are contributing to that decrease in health span? Well, infectious disease, and in fact, that was more predominant earlier. But many of the ones that are the biggest diseases of concern worldwide are heart disease, obesity, and diabetes. Now, if we look back from about 1900 to current times, we can see how the contribution of each of these to life expectancy has changed. So here you see in 1900 that this is a death rate per 100,000 per year. It started to decrease, and you can see that there were some public health events that actually contributed to this. Um, sanitation, such as the use of chlorine in water treatment to reduce infections and waterborne disease, with the exception of the influenza pandemic in 1918. If we discount that spike, at least in terms of public health advances, you can see that um, other sorts of pandemics or plagues decreased as well. We had the advent of antibiotics, the Salk vaccine for polio, and an entire vaccination act. So you got a pretty steady, with the um, exception of the influenza pandemic, a pretty steady decline in the death rate until a little after 1950. And then it sort of leveled off. So if we look at the leading causes of death in 1900, you can see the top three are infectious in origin. And health, heart disease, actually made up less than 10% of the overall deaths in 1900. Fast forward to 1997, and we see a very different chart. In fact, if you go down, pneumonia and influenza, they move down to seventh in that percentage of deaths in where they rank in the top 10 making up less than 5% of the overall deaths. The top four, on the other hand, are all chronic diseases, not infectious in origin. Fast forward even farther, looking at 2011, here's the specific numbers. In the United States, nearly 600,000 people died of heart disease, and almost a similar number, number died from cancer. Then it goes down quite a bit, and you get to a couple other um, chronic lifestyle-related diseases, lower respiratory diseases and stroke. Then you have accidents, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, and here's your first infectious cause on this list, way down here with influenza and pneumonia. If we look even more recently, 2016 to 2017, you see again these numbers of heart disease and cancer being your biggest killers in the U.S. But what's really interesting here is if you look at the underlying factors related to these top two causes of death, here's what you'd actually see. This means that of the total percentage of deaths, about almost 20% could be attributed to tobacco use. Almost 15% could be attributed to diet or lack of physical activity. And then it goes down from there. So smoking and dietary and physical activity patterns 
are some of the most significant issues. Now, we're not the only ones having this issue. If you look at the leading causes of death versus the actual causes of death in the United States, here's where you see those two huge behavioral things. And again, it's not just us. The top 10 leading causes of death in the world, according to the World Health Organization, again, heart disease and stroke. And again, chronic diseases, COPD, lower respiratory infections. And you've got more of the infection rates here as causes of death because many of those are occurring in your third world countries that have lower sanitation and a higher rate of infectious disease spread. So in 2016, the previous slide was 2012, 2016, you see Alzheimer's creeping in as part of the world death causes ranking. And if we start to consider what's going on here, how do we address this issue? We know for both the US and the entire world, heart disease and stroke are huge. They're the biggest causes of death worldwide. Well, in the early 200s, there was a landmark study that looked at more than 50 countries. And the reason that they wanted to do this is they realized that most of the data about these leading causes of death were coming from developed countries, more wealthy countries. And so they really wanted to see, is this true across the world, regardless of the country of origin? And if so, will the same risks and lifestyle factors be at play as they are in a developed country? That was kind of an interesting question. So they took more than 15,000 cases of MI, which is an abbreviation for myocardial infarction, which you may know better as a heart attack. And then they took almost as many controls. And these were from 52 countries that represented every continent that was inhabited. And they looked at these individual factors of abnormal lipids, ab abdominal obesity, prevalence of hypertension, diabetes, smoking, fruits and vegetable consumption, moderate alcohol intake, and regular physical activity. And here's a chart of that information, and it looks like a lot of numbers, but what I really want you to look at here is what's called the odds ratio. Anything that falls above one means that there is an increased risk of a heart attack. Anything that falls below this line is a decreased risk of heart attack. And remember, this is more than 30,000 subjects, and it spanned 52 countries across the globe. So this is pretty significant information. And what they found was smoking across the board, diabetes diagnosis, hypertension, abdominal obesity, psychosocial index, those all increased the risk of a heart attack. Whereas fruit and vegetable intake, exercise, moderate alcohol intake, these all decreased the risk of a myocardial infarction. So it doesn't matter where you live in the world. The researchers concluded that the approaches to prevention for heart disease for a myocardial infarction or heart attack. They can be based on similar principles worldwide and have the potential to prevent 
most premature cases of myocardial infarction. So 10 years later, researchers did a prospective study and say, okay, that was looking back. Well, what if we tried to encourage better lifestyle behaviors and followed people? So they took more than 20,000 Swedish men between the ages of 45 and 79, and they looked at five low-risk behaviors, considered healthy behaviors, and they followed them over 11 years and tried to see whether they ended up having a heart attack or not. So these are the five lifestyle behaviors that they were looking at. Healthy diet, moderate alcohol intake, that's the abbreviation for alcohol, whether or not they were smoking, physical activity, regular certain amount every week, and no abdominal adiposity measured specifically by the waist circumference. And here's what they found. The more low-risk habits that were adopted over that 11-year period, the more their risk dropped for having a myocardial infarction. Their incidence of heart attacks decreased. Whereas if they didn't adopt any of those healthy lifestyle behaviors, they had the highest risk. So just more evidence. But these were middle to older aged adult men. What if we were to encourage this in younger people and follow them for a longer time and see what happens? So more researchers did that. This was a study from more recently in 2014. And they took young adults between the ages of 18 and 30 and followed them for 20 years. And this was about 3,500 subjects. And they looked at what they called healthy lifestyle factors of healthy weight, low alcohol intake, healthy diet, being physically active, and being a non-smoker. And they looked for the very beginning signs of atherosclerosis, which is part of the pathophysiology of a heart attack. So the first sort of signs of a heart attack that may occur. And what they found was these ones in green were the people that over that 20 years actually increased the number of healthy lifestyle factors. They had the least percentage of this coronary artery calcium. That's one of those early signs of artery disease in the heart. Now the people in gray, those are the people that didn't change their lifestyle behaviors at all. They even still had less of coronary artery calcium indicating a progression towards a heart um, artery disease. These ones that actually decreased the number of healthy lifestyles that they participated in over those 20 years, they had the largest amount. So you see there's negative numbers over here. So the ones that actually decreased the numbers of lifestyle behaviors, healthy lifestyle behaviors that they engaged in, they had the greatest amount of this precursor of the disease part of having a heart attack. So let's look more at what those risks are for a heart attack. The risk factors for coronary artery disease, which you may know better just as heart disease, have to do with elevated blood lipids, elevated blood cholesterol, being overweight or obese, tobacco use, physical inactivity, stress, and partly because stress is often related to increasing blood pressure, an unhealthy diet, 
and diabetes as a whole greatly increases your risk of a heart attack or stroke. So let's take a look at some of this. Now, of all of these things, these are specific diagnoses related to numbers that you would measure. This is a specific diagnosis. These, on the other hand, you could say are more related to behaviors or responses to behaviors in the case of stress. Now, these ultimately contribute to all of these others. But the biggest one I want to talk about to start with is obesity, because as we know, there is a trend, an alarming trend here in the U.S. in regards to obesity. So what if we start by taking a look at some numbers? If we go all the way back about 35 years ago and we look at the rates of obesity in the U.S., now there's actually quite a few states that year that they really didn't have information for, all of these white states. But among the ones that they did in blue, none of them goes above 15%. Even these ones that are in darker blue are still below 15% in terms of BMI. So these are specifically looking at a BMI of greater than or equal to 30. And if we go ahead and keep looking at these rates, you begin to see a trend. So we have each year showing more and more states turning blue. And here, 1991, we have the first states showing up with a really dark blue. They've broken the threshold into greater than 15% of the population of that state being considered obese by definition of their BMI. So if we keep going into the next few years, you keep seeing the map get more and more blue until 1997, where we break the threshold into greater than 20% of these few states here, into being 20% of their population considered obese. And what's again alarming, 1997 to only just 2001, four years is all, we have our first state that has more than 25%, more than a quarter of their population meeting the definition of being obese. Unfortunately, again, another four years later, we have the first three states in the country at greater than 30% of their population being considered obese. And what's also scary about this one is that all but three states have more than 20% of their population being obese. Only these blue states here have less than a 15% rate. Or, or less than a 20% rate of their population as being obese. If we continue year by year, you see the map just keeps getting filled in more and more until here in 2010, 12 states have more than 30% of their population as being obese. And 22 states have greater than a quarter or 25% of their population being obese. But this very next year, they changed a little bit of how they measured those numbers. The collection changed a little bit. But what's interesting, even if you look at this, is that no one state has less than 20% of the population. If we go back here, you'll see, remember, we had these different categories. 
it got to the point where we didn't even need the lower categories anymore because here none of them are lower than 20 percent not a single state they're all at least 20 percent or higher in terms of the percentage of their population that is obese as we continue through the next few years you begin to see more and more alarming rates. Here, 2014, more than 35% of the population of three states is obese. And when we get to 2017, we have all but just a couple states have at least a quarter of the percent 25% of their population considered obese. This is alarming. And these lifestyle habits related to mortality in overweight and obese individuals, those numbers are even scarier. So regardless of how many of your lifestyle habits you engage in, let's say you don't do any of these things, fruits and vegetables, exercising, alcohol in moderation, and not smoking. Just the fact that you are in the obese BMI category, that increases your mortality almost sevenfold. So this is where there's a pretty heavy relationship between obesity and mortality. So regardless of your engagement in your lifestyle behaviors, just the fact that someone is in the obese category, their risk of mortality skyrockets. Now, this is also closely related to rates of diabetes in this country. So oftentimes, obesity is related to diabetes because being overweight might alter the resistance, insulin resistance and ability to process glucose into the cells. So what's interesting about this map is it using very similar colors shows us that in the states, or actually this is county level data, in those counties that have a dark red color, there is more than 10.5% of the population diagnosed with diabetes. And so if we compare this to our obesity information, we see a very common trend. So not only do you end up seeing that as obesity rates go up in those exact same years, you saw very similar increases in the diagnoses of diabetes. So there have been several studies on changing lifestyle and heart disease risk with um, the previous research spotlights that I showed you. Well, what about lifestyle and diabetes. Will it work for that? Well, there was a landmark study, again in the early 2000s, that wanted to compare medication or traditional treatment to lifestyle intervention. Now, in this case, these were not people who had been diagnosed as being diabetic. However, they had an elevated fasting and what's called post-load plasma glucose. Now, diabetes is defined as an inability to control blood glucose. So what that means is these people are probably pre-diabetic, what we would call these days, that 
they're on the border of being considered diabetic. And what they wanted to see was if we did some sort of intervention, either giving them a blood glucose um, treatment, a typical drug that might be used to help with blood sugar versus a lifestyle intervention, what kind of result would we see? So they randomly assigned them into three groups, either a placebo, the medication, which in this case was metformin, or a lifestyle intervention. And let's see what they found. What do you see here? This happened over four years. And what you can see here is that in the placebo group, so they didn't have anything, the traditional medication group and the lifestyle medication group, when you compare their fasting level glucose over that four years, they really trended about the same. If you compare their glycosylated hemoglobin or hemoglobin A1C, as it is also sometimes called, in some cases over four years, it actually did better than the drug. Now, A1C is a marker of how well they've been controlling their glucose over about three months. So this was helpful to sort of see what was the long-term benefit here. And it really at the same ended with the same endpoint without the side effects and cost of taking a drug. So lifestyle was just as effective. It just reinforces along with the information we learned about lifestyle and heart disease, that this is something that we need to pursue. And if you're not convinced yet, hopefully by the end of this course, you will be. Now, unfortunately, our healthcare system and medical education system is actually more set up for sick care, not really healthcare. We tend to train healthcare professionals, particularly physicians, on pharmaceuticals and procedures, which means drugs or medicine, and surgery to treat disease. So there's actually a relative lack of education and formal training at both the undergraduate, graduate, and postgraduate levels in all of these lifestyle things like encouraging smoking cessation, exercise and physical activity, nutrition and weight management, and stress management. And so this concept of addressing these, while it's been around for a while, there's still a lack of formal training in this. Now you may think, well, you know, exercise prescriptions have been around for a while. And in some ways, yes, you're right. The ACSM has promoted exercise as medicine and that has become a very big campaign. But that has actually been around much earlier than that. In fact, as early as the 1970s, there was a push to try to include exercise and nutrition counseling in medical schools. In fact, there was an article published in 1975 sort of asking that question. In the future, will physicians be able to prescribe exercise? And they did this survey, and about 74 medical schools participated in the questionnaire. But only 16% of them at the time had a course geared toward exercise as preventive medicine. So you probably assume that by now we've improved quite a bit on those numbers. So let's look at exercise courses in medical schools as of the 2000s. So in 2001, some deans and medical education directors reported again in a survey, there were about 72, so actually around the same number of a sample out of 128, so quite a few that didn't respond. And these medical schools that participated in the questionnaire said that 6% of them 
had a core course addressing exercise prescription. So if you didn't catch it on the previous slide, in 1975, it was 16%. And actually, if this sample is representative, it actually went down in that 25-year period. Now, upon graduation, they claimed that 10% of their graduates in the 2001 survey could design an exercise prescription. But another study wasn't quite as convincing. Here, 102 medical schools participated in the questionnaire, and they claimed at that one that 13% of those schools provided a curriculum in physical activity. But what's interesting here is it wasn't necessarily required. It may have been an elective. Only 6% of those responding to that survey considered it as a required part of their curriculum. And even more upsetting, that three-quarters of them had absolutely no plans to add in a physical activity curriculum into their medical school program. Now, 24% of those respondents said, our graduates are well prepared to counsel patients about health benefits of physical activity. I sort of doubt that if so few of them actually had that background during medical school. Now, some of you would be better equipped to do that. 64% at the time did feel it was the responsibility of medical schools to educate students about physical activity, yet 75% of those medical schools had no plans to implement something. So there's a, a disconnect here, a pretty big disconnect. Now, this education thing on lifestyle may not actually be enough because it turns out that telling people what to do isn't just sufficient to have them just do it. It doesn't generally work. So the top causes of morbidity and mortality have behavioral and environmental components, which means you can't just tell someone you should be doing this. You need to stop smoking. You need to change your diet. You need to exercise. Honestly, how many primary care providers have time in a 20-minute appointment to actually have that kind of conversation? Well, they're trying. So in 2010, the Journal of the American Medical Association published lifestyle medicine competencies for physicians, saying ideally we need to be doing assessments for lifestyle or at least asking questions, and many of them are starting to include that in some of your initial conversation in a, a you know, regular physical, yearly physical appointment. They're recognizing that conversations are important, establishing effective relationships that are based on trust, and sort of being careful of medical terminology um, when, when addressing patients, making sure that the health literacy is addressed, but promoting healthy habits as the foundation for health, and then personally reflecting that. You're probably not going to believe a physician who is overweight or a smoker themselves, right? But here's the key, and this is why you're here. They also recognized more than a decade ago that a team of practitioners is essential in lifestyle medicine and that ideally, given the time restraints that many physicians or other primary care providers have, making referrals is going to be essential. So that's kind of why you're here, right? You may be who they are referring to so that these patients get more one-on-one -on -one time to address these lifestyle issues. So according to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, we would define lifestyle medicine as 
the use of evidence-based lifestyle therapeutic approaches, such as a predominantly whole food plant-based diet, regular physical activity, adequate sleep, stress management, avoidance of risky substance use, and other non-drug modalities to treat and even possibly reverse and prevent these lifestyle-related chronic diseases that we've been talking about thus far. Now, the ACLM, or the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, only just formed. They were only just created in 2004. So they're really gaining steam. This is a relatively new area. But their agenda is pretty darn straightforward. They are stating that there is a link between these six pillars of lifestyle medicine and the ideal state of health. So this is their platform, healthful eating, increasing physical activity, managing stress, forming and maintaining relationships or social support, improving sleep, and avoiding risky substances. So this field really tries to place itself in the health care paradigm, not the sick care paradigm. And it uses science behind health behavior change, which is why you'll notice the first few modules after this one don't have to do directly with the lifestyle behaviors themselves. They have to do with how to change them. In other words, behavior change science, which is something that has to be part of it because, again, just giving someone information on healthy lifestyles is not enough. It emphasizes the value of actually making a prescription for those lifestyle behaviors and helping people work through barriers and issues that might come up in making those changes because we have so many years or decades of habits that it's hard to change. It also emphasizes the fact that we're not all experts in all of these areas and that you can use other healthcare professionals and a team to ideally address each of these for that individual and get individual prescriptions for these lifestyle behaviors. So how do we do this? Well, that may be easier said than done because unfortunately, if we don't make some changes now, we're kind of heading off of a cliff. So here's the total U.S. healthcare expenditures by service for 2010 through 2018 and then projected out through 2026. What is astounding about this is that $3.67 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars were spent on healthcare in 2018. Trillion and look where it's expected to go through 2026. You might say, all right, well, can't we just increase spending on prevention to help address this issue? Well, you might think so, but according to the American Public Health Association, in 2012, the percentage of healthcare dollars that were spent on prevention, only 3%. Now, what percent of the healthcare costs are related to something you could even prevent? Turns out three quarters of them. So again, a disconnect, right? We could remove 75% of our healthcare costs because they are due to preventable conditions. 
Unfortunately, we're only spending 3% of our healthcare dollars on prevention. So the Institute of Medicine is actually recommending that federal funding for public health and prevention would need to be increased by $12 billion a year in order to meet these, this need. It just may not get there. Now, this is crucial because if you look at the forecasts, remember heart disease is the largest cause of death, both in the U.S. and across the world. And if you project that out to 2030, this is scary as well. Direct cost of cardiovascular disease expected to rise in this 20-year period by how much? It will triple. So it will go from $273 billion to $818 billion. And that's, again, just not sustainable. Now, 70% of cardiovascular disease could be prevented or delayed by healthy choices, healthy diet, and lifestyle modifications. What kinds of things? Well, here you go. You probably know these, right? Not smoking. Maintaining a BMI less than 25. Eating more than five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Having alcohol of no more than one drink per day. And physical activity or exercise that totals at least 150 minutes a week. So how are we doing on this? Well, if you compare from about 1988 to 1994 to 2001 to 2006, obesity during that time increased from 28% to 36%. Regular physical activity decreased from 53% to 43%. Eating five fruits or vegetables a day also decreased from 42 to 26%, only a quarter of Americans are eating five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. What if you lump all of them together? Adherence to all five healthy habits has gone from 15% to eight. Adherence to healthy habits, though, you would think would be something that somebody diagnosed with a chronic disease would want to adopt. Unfortunately, adherence to healthy habits is no more likely in people who've been diagnosed with these diseases than it would be in somebody who has not had that sort of diagnosis. So you would think then, once physicians are better prepared for counseling on lifestyles, then it should get better, right? Well, there have actually been some studies on that too. They looked at whether physician counseling, sorry about that, whether physician counseling would actually make a difference. In a 2008 study of hypertensive patients, they looked at what percentage of those physicians actually spent some time counseling those patients on physical activity as a way to man manage their hypertension. Turns out only a third of those physicians spent time talking about exercise and management of hypertension as opposed to medications. Now, of those third that were counseled, you would think that they would have adopted something if it meant they didn't have to take medication. Well, not necessarily. Only 71% of that third. So that may sound like a big number, but remember it's only 71% of one third actually followed recommendations by increasing exercise to reduce blood pressure. Well, what about diabetic patients? Maybe 
they'll react differently. Diabetic patients only received counseling or referral for nutrition 36% of the time. And what about exercise for them? Only 18% of the time. So even less of that for diabetic patients was spent talking about exercise. So again, we've kind of got to make a change. Now, this may mean that we need to expand training in lifestyle medicine, get better at making referrals, but these professionals that we're referring to, we need to make sure that they're able to foster that behavioral support that's needed, not just giving information, which is why this course will be a little different in the sense that not only are you going to learn about those lifestyle behaviors, but we're going to practice having the conversations to try to encourage behavior change because those are not always easy to do. Now this support of behavior change is called coaching and it's different than athletic coaching. Well, it, it, it is similar in the sense that you're trying to get improvement in that individual, but here it's about their wellness. You are coaching them to increase their positive lifestyle behaviors toward a greater state of wellness. <clears throat> And what's important about this is, as I said before, giving information is not all that a person needs to make a lifestyle change. They may have to consider things like their strengths, their values. What are the benefits? Maybe they just need some education. Obstacles are huge because once you identify those, then and only then can you really start to prepare to make a change. You have to create goals, make a plan, have support, support their self-efficacy and confidence. They have to be committed because if they're not, they won't follow through. And then you get into actually doing it. So all of this even comes before somebody actually takes action. Once they do, they take those behavioral steps. They ideally have some sort of reward system and it could be intrinsic or it could be external. They may require some problem solving as they run into barriers along the way. And sometimes there's a step back, a relapse. You know, they, they make a change in their lifestyle, but then they go back to their old habits. And that's normal. That's a circular process. But in order to re achieve lasting changes, this coaching process has to include behavioral steps. And this finally would ideally lead to a long-lasting, sustainable change. So if you're interested in sort of seeing how this goes, stay tuned. More to come on this.